Afshin Marashi, and I'm the director of the Farzaneh Family Center for Iranian and Persian Gulf Studies here at the University of Oklahoma. And on behalf of everyone here at the center and at the university, I'd like to welcome you to the OU Iranian Studies podcast. Uh, we are recording this podcast in early November of 2019, and this is another uh, in our ongoing series of podcast uh, interviews with visiting speakers that we uh, invite here to the uh, OU Farzana Center for Iranian Studies. Actually, if you haven't had a chance to listen to our other podcast episodes, uh, please go to the Farzana Center website and you can listen to them there. I think we have about half a dozen or so podcasts recorded now, so you can uh, listen to those there. We also have a video library of talks uh, given by our visiting speakers, which you can also watch uh, on our YouTube channel, uh, on, also on the website. Um, and please like us on Facebook to stay updated on things. Anyway, for today's episode, we are very fortunate to have with us Professor Eric Loeb. Uh, Eric is an assistant professor in the Department of Politics and International Relations at Florida International University in Miami. So, Eric, welcome to the OU Iranian Studies Podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you, Eric. Uh, Eric's research uh, focuses on issues of politics and economic development in the Middle East uh, with a focus on Iran, although, as we'll see, he discusses or his research goes beyond Iran as well. But it's fair to say he has an Iran focus in much of his work. Uh, Eric completed his Ph.D. in Near Eastern Studies at Princeton in 2013, and he also has degrees from uh, University of Pennsylvania and uh, the Johns Hopkins University. Uh, and I should add, your dissertation won the Best Dissertation Award in, was it 2013? Uh, is that right? That's right, yeah. From the Foundation for Iranian Studies? That's right, well, yes. Congratulations. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> and we are happy to report his revised manuscript uh, will be published in uh, just a few months by Cambridge University Press. That's right, and yes. So when is it actually coming out? Well, on the website it says December 2019. Oh, okay. Uh, yes. So so that's next month? Yes, next month. <laughs> so you've gone through the proofs and everything? Yes, I went through the proofs in late September. The book's been in production since the summer. Uh-huh. So hopefully we'll see it uh, in print and at the end of 2019, if not early 2020. And so what's the title of the book? The title is uh, Iran's Reconstruction Jihad, Rural Development and Regime Consolidation After 1979. Oh, fantastic. All right. So yeah, definitely uh, Iran since 79 focus. Yes. Uh, well, we're all very eager to see it uh, in print, and I'm, I'm eager to hear more about the book, and uh, we can discuss that as well. But before we get into a discussion of the book, uh, maybe you can just tell us something broadly about your academic background and how you came to select your particular research specialization. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, um, I was, uh, I've been interested in the Middle East um, and, and the Arab world at the, um, at the master's level. And then when I entered my PhD program, I had come in with a knowledge of Arabic, having studied Arabic in Syria. Mm-hmm. Uh, our program at Princeton, our PhD program, the Near Eastern Studies uh, Department, uh, uh, it required actually its students to learn a second Middle East language. So I chose Persian, mm-hmm. given the geostrategic uh, and geopolitical relations that exist between uh, Syria and Iran, mm-hmm. and was fortunate enough to go to Iran to study Persian and uh, at the Dehoda Institute in Tehran. Oh, that's fantastic. And then being on the ground really um, 
uh, you know, I really started gravitating towards uh, studying Iranian politics, history, and society, and culture. And you were there from when to when? I was there from 2009 to 2011, okay. on and off. So I wanna, I'll definitely want to ask you more about that, your time there. Uh, but in terms of situating yourself, uh, in, in terms of discipline, I mean, you say you gra- you're a graduate from the Near Eastern Studies PhD program right. at Princeton. Uh, and but but your your book is also has a kind of political science dimension to it, and I'm just wondering how you kind of position yourself as a political scientist or as a, a area studies specialist. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, as a historian, I found your manuscript uh, very accessible. Okay, thank you. Uh, even though I'm not a political scientist, and I'm just trying to figure out what it is about your work that actually makes it accessible <laughs> beyond the kind of immediate discipline of, if that's political science. Is that something you think about? Oh, absolutely. Uh, in terms of how to na- navigate our disciplinary boundaries in academia, both in the United States and even beyond. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you said, I do have an area studies PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, at Princeton, they encourage the students in the Department of Near Eastern Studies to latch on to another discipline. So I chose political science. I have colleagues who chose history mm-hmm. and religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in terms of you know situating my work and, and my research, uh, I would say that I do plug into political science theories on revolution, on mm-hmm. social movement, on social activism, but also touch uh, on an, both theoretically but even methodologically on a historical, sociological Right. approach. So, you know, I, I think the book does border on on different disciplines. You could call it an interdisciplinary work mm-hmm. and, and largely uses qualitative methods. Yeah, so it's a qualitative method. I mean, I think a lot of the political science work that we see now is has more of a quantitative method. It's right. almost as though political science is kind of evolved into the economics department. And there's, you know, nothing wrong with that. And there's a lot that can be maybe uh, gained from that. But uh, there's probably much less of that quantitative approach in your work. And you see it, I think, in Middle East political science. I mean, uh-huh. I, I, I have seen works that use a more positive approach, positivist approach. Um, I think some of the better works I've seen use mixed methods, both quantitative and qualitative. You can use quantitative methods and regression models to show general patterns, right. but it's also a good idea, I think, to delve deeper into specific cases qualitatively as well. Mm-hmm. So, And also it speaks to, I think, the methodological limitations of the Middle East in terms of accessing quality and reliable and transparent quantitative data that makes it difficult and may make you have to rely more on qualitative approaches. I yeah, I mean, that's part of the challenge of doing the research in that region is right. it lends itself maybe more to that kind of uh, field work and qualitative approach. I mean, and that goes maybe to the really the the strongest part of your methodological approach, which is sort of the deep immersion in uh, the language and in the society. Right. Um, So you you have advanced level Persian and Arabic. So that's Mm. basically methodologically speaking, that's kind of uh, maybe the the thing that stands out most is, is the time you spent there. Right. So is it based mostly on interviews and, and that kind of work, or what other kind of mixed methods then sure. characterizes the book? So at the base of the work, uh, at the core, I would say, is, like you said, interviews, uh, ethnogra- ethnography, even participant observation, mm-hmm. a term anthropologists and uh, use and sociologists. But to triangulate those interviews, I also 
uh, actually accessed uh-huh. archives and libraries in Iran um, to, to make sure that what I was hearing from my informants and my interviewees mm-hmm. matched up to what I was seeing in books, articles, documents, reports, etc. Mm-hmm. So really to try to get a holistic um, group of sources to corroborate mm-hmm. the, what I was hearing from the interviewees. And I guess that's the interdisciplinary element. I guess that's what makes it accessible to me is the archival element, right. uh, the textual element, and then combining mm-hmm. that with the ethnographic and uh, qualitative approach that you, that you uh, make. And I think that probably describes the book, your approach at least, um, pretty well. And I definitely endorse the book on those grounds as well. As a historian, as I say, it's very accessible uh, to someone like me. And I, I learned a great deal for, uh, about Iran since 79. Uh, by reading the book. So let's talk about the book. Can you can maybe give us an overview of the book? What's the book about? What's the central argument? The central argument uh, and question is how since 79 and even in 79, when the, when the government, the state, the regime, however you want to label it, was trying to consolidate power, how did it use development to instrument, how did it instrumentalize development to consolidate power domestically in 1979 and through the early 1980s, because it wasn't a given that Khomeini and the Islamic Republican Party and the circle of clerics and lay leaders around him would consolidate power. They were facing opponents that were originally part of the revolutionary coalition against the Shah that then fragmented, as we often see in revolutionary and post-revolutionary states. And then also, how did the Islamic Republic use development to project its influence to other parts of the Muslim and developing world in places like Lebanon and Africa, which the book covers, um, are really the main questions that the book tackles uh, through the case study of its rural and development organization, uh, jihad e sazandegi or that translates to Reconstruction or Construction Jihad, which was established in the early months after the transition, officially established in June of 1979, but even started in February um, when Khomeini makes his way back to Iran and the Shah leaves. And it, it really shows you that this was a priority for the government, uh, for the provisional government. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, the first thing that they do is they establish the Revolutionary Guard mm-hmm. as a parallel institution to the military. But then right after that, just several months later, they establish uh, Jihad al-Sazandigi as a parallel institution this is to the— when? In 79? Um, so the the it's the the um, the organization begins actually, and this gets into um, one of the things I look at in terms of how this organization is mobilized. Mm-hmm. So it actually starts mobilizing from the bottom up in February of 1979, mm-hmm. uh, before it's officially established as a revolutionary organization in June of 1979. Okay. So we're still talking the transitional government, right? Provisional government, yeah, yeah, um, right. and you know, uh, the Khomeini and Bazargan had different visions of the organization. And this kind of gets into early factionalism that we see mm-hmm. from, from the moment the provisional government is established. So when you talk about the, the development, you are really talking about the rural dimension. Right. So it's sort of the, the rural policy was, as, as you're suggesting, you know, central to the revolutionary project right from the very beginning. Right. Um, and so how would you maybe talk about the earlier scholarship on the rural dimension in Iranian studies, for example. I mean, I remember when I was an undergraduate in the 80s, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the one book that I knew about, and I don't think there was a lot more than this, was the Eric Hoagland book, Land and Revolution, which right. was basically about the land reform. Uh, and maybe there's the Mary Hagland, I think, did some ethnography. I, don't know, I guess Ann Lampton did some stuff on land, too, right. earlier. Um 
but you know there wasn't very there hasn't been anything since as far as I know in the United States so I mean what your book is really doing is uh, picking up on that thread of work that was very important in you know the 50s 60s and 70s I think the Eric Hoagland book came out in 1980 I'm not sure yeah Yeah, 1980s Um, so you know how do you kind of connect with that scholarship maybe we can talk about that Sure. The, well, like you said, Eric Hoogland looks at the primarily at the Shah's land reform and also develop, uh, rural development and agricultural policies uh, during the White Revolution. And he had been on the ground there. Yeah. Uh, so he had the luxury of, of seeing these events unfold and the unintended consequences of those policies. How, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, the Shah was trying to win rural and provincial, provincial support, but ended up uh, with, uh, you know, unintended consequences and deficiencies of these policies, actually politicizing, radicalizing right. segments of the population. Um, and he was countering the narrative that the the peasants or the villagers were apolitical and passive during the revolution and showing, no, as a matter of fact, they were uh, at least segments of them. And, and there's also some generational differences, but were very much mobilized, politicized, uh-huh. radicalized leading up to it. Mm-hmm. Um, given, you know, the changes that were going on structurally, but also with the oil boom of the 60s and 70s, but also the policies that were being enacted under yeah, the shop. Because it turns out land reform was a very difficult thing to actually, you know, carry out. Right, <laughs> so right. it had a lot of unintended Exactly, exactly. Whether in competence or just the, the, the sheer challenge of it. Right. Uh, uh, it had unintended consequences. But, uh, I mean, you, you mentioned this. I mean, Eric uh, was on the ground. Right, right. <laughs> and he sort of was able to see this. And right. uh, what made that kind of scholarship, I think Ann Lampton and Mary Hegland as well, right. was they were able to do field work and sort of see this rural dimension as it was taking shape. Right. And you've done that. Right. And that's kind of what one of the things that really jumps out in your work is that you actually did manage to do field work in in the rural dimension and figure that out. How did you manage to do this? This is one of the things we always complain about yeah. in Iranian studies is how how difficult it is to actually do real field work in Iran. I mean, uh, I guess that's sort of maybe the burning question is how did you how did you do this? Should we can I can I ask you? How yeah, you <laughs> I would. <laughs> well, would is, is it a secret you don't want to tell? <laughs> no, I mean, I if it could help other researchers go to Iran and do quality research because, as you said, there's a big lacuna in that area that mm-hmm. needs to be filled. So, I mean, really, it was a combination. I mean, I can get into the methodological technicalities. Uh, and approaches, but really, I mean, what it boiled down to was was a combination of luck and persistence. Uh, you know, I mean, I was traveling on a French passport, so I was able to mm-hmm. access Iran, go to Dehoda, and then start making contacts with um, former members of Jihad Sazendigi, many of them in the Ministry of Agriculture. I had actually, thanks to Dr. Huglin, who put me in touch with some people, I had some. Uh, academics in Iran who were also helping me with this project and putting me in touch with uh, yeah individuals they knew that either rural experts that could shed light on this subject or people they knew that were affiliated once affiliated with uh, Jihad Sazendigi. Um, so I had you know support academically and as well as you know making more and more contacts and and really just continuing to follow up with people. Uh, people, some people were hesitant, understandably, to speak with me initially and said, look, why don't you call me back a day later or a week later? And I would make sure, you know, I'd take a, make a note in the calendar and always follow up with people um, until, you know, they either said no or they, you know, they finally uh, agreed to meet with me. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, over time, what we refer to as snowball sampling, mm-hmm. I developed a network of contacts, both academically, but also in the, you know, in the ministries, in the bureaucracies, and even outside of it, in, in companies and organizations where there were former members, you know, there was, mm-hmm. I mean, there were thousands of people in this organization. So it's quite an expansive network, but, you know, tapping into it as much as I could, getting outside of Tehran to the extent that I could, because like you said, it was uh, an organization that operated mainly in provinces and villages. So getting there um, and, and making contacts outside and getting the perspective outside of the capital, which is very important mm-hmm. to the fullest, fullest extent possible. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so you were able to actually do this. You didn't have any run-ins or any kind of, uh, any, you know, s- sketchy moments when you were doing, some of this stuff is pretty, a little bit sensitive, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the thing is too, is I came into it saying, look, I'm doing a project on development that framing it as an, a relatively innocuous topic. But as you said, there any subject you start delving into has a political dimension to it. Mm-hmm. So there, there were sensitivities. And, and I did run into some issues at the very end uh, of my stay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things were going relatively smoothly. And I was checking in with people from time to time that were affiliated with the Iranian government and being very transparent with them about my work. Um, but at the end, you know, like the United States, there's multiple security agencies. And I guess one of uh, a security agency that didn't like what I was doing um, came in the middle of one of my interviews in, in one of the ministries and, uh, mm. uh, you know, <laughs> detained me for, for several hours. And uh, and it, it was I mean, it was fortunate that I was able to escape detention or not escape, but to get out of it. Uh, again, given that by that point I had a network that could vouch for me uh-huh. and say, you know, he's doing serious re- research. His attentions are uh, are noble or professional or, or serious, um, you know, and vouching for me and, and allowing me to get out of detention. Uh, you know, at that and and I and at that point I had collected a lot of data because it was really at the end of my stint in Iran and. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's what ended it essentially, because you know the professors that I was speaking with told me, you know, it's time to leave now. <laughs> Take the data you've collected. You've collected a lot of data, and go back to the United States. And and coming back to the United States was not a foregone conclusion either, right. uh, with with U.S. customs officials. So obviously, navigating all of that becomes very tricky. Well, I mean, well, the result is really, really, uh, really interesting and fascinating, and well well-documented, uh, very rich book. Uh, so maybe we can talk a little bit about the book, Ben. I mean, when you talk about um, one of the themes that comes up is this idea of soft power and the durability of the Islamic Republic and the sort of use of non-coercive uh, measures for sort of consolidating. Is that sort of what would grow out of all this research and sort of piecing that together? Yes, absolutely. I mean, my first time there was in 2009 during the Green Movement. And um, one thing that I was as a distant observer, Mm -hmm. you know, intentionally from the demonstrations and the protests, one thing I noticed is that in contrast to the Arab Spring, um, and again, I know that there was a lot of arrests and I'm not discounting coercion by any means. I know that the government did use coercion during that time to maintain power. Um, but you see a fairly low number compared to the Arab Spring of, of casualties during that time, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the, the obviously there's contrast between what state officials were saying versus what activists. But even, you know, we're talking about dozens of lives that were lost during that period. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it really raised this question of what else is the state doing to to persevere? Mm-hmm. Um, and when you look at the literature on Iran, on revolutionary Iran, even pre-revolutionary Iran, a lot of the focus is on these course of institutions. 
Um, so not very little work had been done on Jihad al-Zandigi. And as I said, again, it was really a priority for the government because at the time of the revolution in 1979, over half the population was still living in villages. And a lot had been done in the villages. So the state wanted to live up to the promise of, of, that the Shah had started with the White Revolution of de delivering goods and services and improving livelihoods there. And at the same time, there was obviously a political dimension to this project to um, gain, to win hearts and minds, to marginalize opponents, and to really um, increase and expand a state presence in the rural areas. So it's, it shows the non-coercive side, you know, the soft power. Of course, when things got contentious in some provinces, particularly the ethnic provinces along the borders, the IRGC would go in, the, the army and the security forces would go in, and that was the hard power of the state. But alongside them, or even ahead of them, was this soft power arm of, of this development organization, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. delivering goods and services to the people. And so, for example, um, uh, one of the representatives of, of Jihad al-Sazendegi in his memoirs um, mm -hmm. s states very upfront that this was, you know, the political mission that we wanted to, you know, use the, he doesn't use the term soft power that, you know, Nye had right. uh, brought to the social sciences, but he basically says we want to go in there, we want to um, uh, gain popular legitimacy and support in these areas, we want to marginalize opponents, um, radical leftist opponents, Mujahideen al-Khalq, the Fedayeen, and others that had also been establishing a presence in the villages and delivering goods and services. Mm -hmm. And so they were worried that they that the revolution, as informants or interviews had said, would be hijacked by these groups. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to outdo them mm -hmm. and really bring the rural population to, to their side. Yeah, I mean, and that's one of the things that comes across in the book is the sort of the evolution of this rural dimension from you know, certain different stages in how this, uh, this policy, this state-led non-coercive policy evolves. And can you kind of divide that out, sort of different periods? I mean, there's the early period of the revolution, and then something def it definitely evolves after that into a different stage. What are these different stages? Yeah, so again, 1979 to about 1982, 1983 is really this phase of consolidation mm -hmm. where, I mean, Khomeini and the Islamic Republican Party, they're concerned. I mean, they bring Bazargan and the freedom movement into the fold. Uh, both sides are concerned about, you know, radical leftist groups uh, that I had mentioned, Marxist groups, um, Islamist Marxist groups. So they're using jihad as a soft power instrument to kind of ma marginalize them. Mm -hmm. And jihadi activists, even though some of them are leftists, are also uh, concerned about these groups in the villages. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, they're working together. Eventually, you know, we know that Bazargan is, is marginalized. But, um, you know, this is a main argument of the book that between 1979, 1982, 1983, um, jihad was instrumental, really, in helping the regime consolidate power in the provinces, in the villages, alongside the IRGC and other institutions. There were other, other soft power institutions, too. The Imam Khomeini Relief Committee, the Housing Foundation, um, in terms of, you know, trying to win the population over, marginalize opponents. And you see a consolidation in 1982, 1983, where these groups are severely marginalized or weakened. Um, of course, there's also... Um, 
initiatives being taken by the government to marginalize these opponents in the cities as well. So there's an urban side of the story, but I really focus more on the rural. And so by 1982, 1983, the, the regime, the state, the government is more comfortable um, thanks to you know this amalgamation of parallel institutions that have been active in the villages, mm-hmm. um, both in you know trying to help the rural population and then, and and you know outdo these uh, these these radical leftist groups, and then after that, uh, not coincidentally, the organization is transformed into a ministry and brought into the bureaucratic fold. Um, and you know, and the, that's about 83, that's 83, yeah. exactly. 1983 to 2001, it's, it really becomes part of the Iranian bureaucracy. And that leads to all sorts of, it was done for a variety of reasons. Um, so w- one of the interesting things is that all the different factions in the Islamic Republic, Republican party, the leftists, the rightists, the centrists, they all agree actually to bring it into the bureaucratic fold. So, you know, this is an example that I don't think is highlighted enough in the literature on Iran, that actually these factions at times can agree on things mm-hmm. and come to a consensus. They're not always you know, competing and at each other's throats. Mm-hmm. So this is one example of when there's, for various reasons, they agree to institutionalize the organization and bureaucratize it, mm-hmm. which um, creates a dynamic where, because the organization was initially anti-bureaucratic. Mm-hmm. And so these the activists who were in the organization believed that they were actually doing what the bureaucracy wasn't. Mm-hmm. That up until the time of the revolution, the bureaucrats who were affiliated with the Shah were sitting in Tehran, they were... Uh, uh, drinking tea, collecting their paychecks, caring more about their careers than the actual rural areas. So they, you know, these revolutionary activists that were part of jihad thought they were doing the right thing, you know, and really filling the void that the bureaucracy was not filling uh, or not doing. Mm -hmm. And then they became part of the bureaucracy. So some of them wanted that. Some of them wanted, you know, career stability and paychecks, just like the bureaucrats, although some of them are not are reluctant to admit that. I think but you say some of them left the bureaucracy out of sort of frustration. Frustration. Or they were stuck in the bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. So even today when you talk to some of them, you know, there's this frustration mm-hmm. that now they're just like the bureaucrats that they were railing against when they started the organization. Um, you know, individualism, careerism, red tape, stagnancy, <laughs> all these things that come, uh, even though, you know, theorists like uh, Max Weber praise the... Right. The, you know, the, the merits of bureaucracy, uh, I think this case also shows the, the shortcomings of bureaucracy that are not just unique to Iran, but exist in a lot of contexts outside of Iran. Mm-hmm. I mean, so there's this revolutionary stage, then there's this sort of bureaucratization stage. And then you also talk about this this idea of associationalism. Is right. That, is that a later stage yet? Is that comes next or what comes after that? Yes. So the associations really started in the 2000s mm-hmm. and particularly as as... I would say as the reformists come on the scene mm-hmm. and there becomes this intense factionalism inside the government, but also, of course, it spills over into society uh, where the, the, this intense competition reform, between reformists and conservatives. And you see jihadists who are f- or former members of jihadist al-Zendigi establishing these associations. And this brings into questions about civil society in Iran and in a post-revolutionary state in terms of how autonomous these associations really are. Mm -hmm. And these associations, they represent different factions. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, some are more sympathetic towards the conservatives, some are more sympathetic towards the reformists, or even within them, they're not monolithic. There's different strains within them. And 
they present themselves on the surface as autonomous, but you, when you start to dig deeper, you see that they're actually being supported or encouraged by political elites. Mm-hmm. So there's a blurry area there. And uh, there's a scholar that uses, or, or certain scholars of civil society and social movements in the Middle East have used the, the expression gongo. It's mm. kind of an oxymoron or a paradox, government-organized, non-governmental right. organizations. It's like corporatism. Corporatism or co-optation, yeah. exactly. And, uh, and so on the one hand, you see a corporatist element to these associations or dimension. On the other hand, you actually see unintended consequences that... Uh-huh. You know, they create these associations and then they actually their closeness with elites empower them to start making demands on these elites. Right. So all of a sudden, these elites are feeling uncomfortable. They're feeling pressured by these groups. So one example is that because um, Jahadis al-Zendegi played an important role in the war by supporting troops, its engineers provided logistical support. It created a veterans association that then demanded more from even the conservatives and hardliners that come into power. Um, in the 2000s, uh, Ahmadinejad and others, to, to give more compensation and more services to, to war veterans. Mm-hmm, interesting. So, yeah. So it's, it has a kind of uh, an effort to kind of create a kind of mobilizing uh, project to kind of, you know, help to establish more of a um, uh, loyalty to these groups, but then they kind of take on a life of their own. Right, exactly. And in a sense, that sounds like you know Iranian politics. Exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. And even from the from the beginning, the the, the organization mobilizes from below mm-hmm. these activists, and then they actually start pushing Khomeini and the IRP and even Bazargan and the Freedom Movement to support mm-hmm. them. So you know, from the very beginning, there's these bottom up, top down dynamics that are very interesting and mm-hmm. looking at the mobilization over time. Mm-hmm. That again gets often gets neglected in the literature and the scholarship. That often makes it a top down process. You know, the state is doing Absolutely. all the mobilizing. And, it, and you can only figure out the bottom-up process if you're, if you're there talking to people, right. which is what you've done. Here. Right, right. Um, you know, in, in the, the first, the revolutionary stage that you talked about, I, I don't want to pass up on this uh, idea of the role of the left, uh, which, I mean, I, I think you talk about this in the book and you mentioned it, is in some ways the um, the jihad sasandegi was an effort to kind of compete with or catch up with the the role of the the revolutionary leftist organizations right. you know if you look at the you know the broad coalition of that you know period from the 70s into the revolution you know there's a kind of the maoist element right. was actually a big part of that movement right. and, and they they understood the rural dimension probably better than uh, you know many of the you know the, the Khomeiniist factions yes. um and, you know, part of the story that you tell is how the left basically was marginalized in this process. But there's that story, you know, in, in some ways, you know, the history of the Iranian left is a story that's in some ways been written out of the history of the of Iran since 79. Um, and you have a lot to say about that then. I mean, so how exactly did that play out in that revolutionary stage, the role of the secular left, let's call them? Right. No, absolutely. It's, it's, it's a complicated subject that I dedicate a lot of time or space in the book to. Uh, you know, as I said, uh, Khomeini was actually concerned about these groups staging a Maoist revolution. Mm-hmm. And they actually, so the the former members of Jihad that I interviewed, they admitted to going out to the provinces and villages and seeing what 
Mujahideen al-Khalq and Fedayan and other um, mm-hmm. secular but also Islamist Marxist groups were doing, mm-hmm. um, and then kind of appropriating their strategy and right. tactics, right. and then you know pushing them to the side. Mm-hmm. Um, and what what's interesting is that members of jihad, uh, some of them were right wing and and more interested in faith based development, but others very much leftist, mm-hmm. and very much. Uh, appropriating the agenda of these groups and so really championing land reform and mm-hmm. nationalization of industry and redistribution of wealth mm-hmm. and were very disillusioned actually so you know they had similar agendas and as a matter of fact to escape persecution one interesting thing I found out is some members of these uh, opposition groups actually to escape persecution joined jihad uh-huh. You know, they joined right. forces with them. Right. They got absorbed into Yeah, them. and and some were purged. You know, they weren't as lucky. Right. You know, they ended up in prison and executed. But uh, but some were able to get their way into jihad and mm-hmm. stay there um, and, and become part of it. And, and, you know, as a whole, so, you know, the leftist strain of the organization continues. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, even with the marginalization of these groups and their demise. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I think that's a really important point because yeah. I think there is a kind of uh, reassessment and a, uh, a return to try- trying to write the history of the Iranian left into the history of modern Iran. And right. one of the things I, I want to make sure everyone sort of recognizes is that your book is actually contributing to that evolving historiography as well. So Thanks. that's, I think, going to be an important another way of making yeah. your book contribute to uh, other debates that are related to, not necessarily to uh, the, the rural dimension, but to the larger history of the left as well. Thanks. Um, you know, one maybe final point mm-hmm. to kind of talk about is, you know, your book is not only about Iran, in fact. Right. It's about sort of Iran's foreign policy outside of Iran. Right. Um, and maybe you can say something about, about that. How has sort of rural development policy been instrumentalized not only in Iran's rural dimension, but as part of Iran's foreign policy. Right. So this is uh, something I dedicate two chapters in the book to, one chapter on Lebanon, one in Africa. And we talked earlier about the power consolidation phase between 1979 and the early 1980s. Once the state becomes more comfortable and this organization is converted into a ministry, it begins embarking on overseas missions to export this development model elsewhere. Uh, And it targets Lebanon in the 1980s, where it works with Hezbollah on developing this organization there to service and socialize Hezbollah's constituents. And and that's an obvious choice and obviously Mm -hmm. a a close and enduring uh, relationship that exists. But the the other interesting um, side to this story is that they deploy to Africa. And, and largely in non-Muslim or Sunni Muslim territories. So, you know, they're facing kind of demographic challenges and constraints and also foreign competition, but they're able to actually fill a void in that there's, you know, Africa struggles with or certain countries uh, with, you know, develop, rural development and, you know, have these large agrarian economies and um, high rates of rural poverty. So the organization really fills a, you know, a void there in Africa and, and, and delivers valuable services. And through that, again, we talk about soft power. Uh, Iran is able to project influence in, in Africa. Has it been successful? I mean... It's, it's been successful, but when you look at the literature on Iran and Africa, there, there tends to be the use of terms like hegemonic and expansionist. Mm-hmm. And so there were definitely successes, but there's also, as I mentioned, constraints that 
often are overlooked. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of, I think, show a more nuanced narrative that Iran that, right. that Iran is not taking over Africa. Right, right, um, right. You know, kind of dialing down the alarmists. Yeah, that uh, definitely comes out. I think in your Ijmis, you have an Ijmis article right, on this, too. Right, on which the chapter is based mm-hmm. in the book, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because, like I said, Iran faces uh, demographic constraints and also geopolitical constraints mm-hmm. because, you know, you could look at Iran in isolation in Africa, which... Uh, which I try not to do because there's a whole host of other actors there. I mean, obviously, there's the major powers in the international system, the United States, China, Europe, that brings in a lot of investment to Africa. Um, and, and even a lot of Middle Eastern countries are, are in Africa competing there, uh, Arab Gulf states, uh, Israel, Turkey. So, uh, again, that creates strains for Iran, too. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Well, you know, I, I think we've... Uh, covered a lot of ground in thinking about and learning a little bit about the book, but we obviously have only still just skimmed along the surface. Uh, and maybe we should probably end there, but I think our listeners probably have a good sense of the book, but they should go read it for themselves to uh, see um, wh- how much more there is in there. And you say it'll be available hopefully in December 2019, just as basically next month from right. when we're recording. Uh, Well, we look forward to seeing it in print. Congratulations uh, on the book. Thanks for making the trip all the way to Oklahoma. (laughs) Thanks for having me. (laughs) It's a pleasure. Uh, And and thanks for joining us uh, on the OU Iranian Studies podcast. And thanks to our listeners. Uh, Until next time, thank you. uh, Thank you all for joining. (music) 